Let's turn together to 1 Samuel, beginning in, in chapter 13. This is setting the context for what we're going to read in chapter 15. As we're working through the books of Samuel, meeting this guy named Saul, the first king of Israel, first king of God's people, but really a foil to the central figure of the books of Samuel, the, the protagonist, David, who ends up being the king who is a man after God's own heart. And we saw in Deuteronomy 17 that charter for kingship that God had already given to the people way back in the time of Abraham, saying someday you're going to look for a king, and when you do, he needs to fit certain qualifications. You don't want a king who's going to bring glory to himself by being a warrior king who surrounds himself with a lot of horses, you don't want a king who's given to lust and goes after lots of wives. You don't want a greedy king who's going after wealth. But instead, you want the kind of king who's going to make a copy of this book of my law, my laws, my commands, my decrees. A king who's really going to acknowledge me as the true king, and then he's going to carry that book of the law with him every day and model to the people a king who is submitted to every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's the kind of king that you should look for. And yet now when we get to this story 400 years later in Israel's history, the kind of king that they get is actually a king who does all the things that God had warned against. He's a king who's uh, going out into battle himself, who's bringing glory to himself, who does not even know the word of the Lord, much less is able to teach it to God's people. And so we're going to see now in chapter 15 as the Lord rejects Saul as the king, as there are uh, several uh, events leading up to this ultimate rejection of the kingship, but indicators of what's really going on in Saul's heart. He's more concerned about listening to the people. He's more concerned about uh, his own reputation and ego than he is about the word of the Lord. And so t today we're going to look first of all, at the story in 1 Samuel 13, beginning in verse 8. Context of this passage is a little bit earlier in chapter 10 when Samuel, the prophet of God, is anointing Saul. He gives him some pretty clear instructions. 1 Samuel 10, verse 6, he says, You will wait for seven days, and then I will come to you and show you what you shall do. And this is right after a really exciting message into Saul's life where God's Spirit is going to come upon you. You're going to prophesy. Uh, God's about to give Saul, Saul a new heart. So all kinds of good things happening for Saul. A very simple instruction. Go to Gilgal. Wait there for seven days. I will come to offer the sacrifice, and then I'll tell you what to do next. And this is not Samuel on an ego trip. This is Samuel, the messenger of God, Samuel pointing the new king of Israel, Saul, to listen to, hear, submit, obey to the word of God for him. So Saul, really a decision for you. Are you going to follow your own intellect, your own heart? Or are you going to wait and obey and say, God, I'm here to listen. I'm here to hear. I'm here to obey. Not unlike the decision each of us make every day, right? Do we live by our own wisdom? Do we follow our own minds? Do we do what's best in our eyes? Do we follow our hearts? Or do we set all that aside and say, God, I submit all that I am, my thinking and my feeling to you, and I purpose to live by your plans and your ways. So Saul was given a very clear message. Wait for seven days. I'll come to offer the sacrifice and then bring a message to you from God about what you're to do next. 
So let's find out a week later, how is he doing with this? Verse 8. Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Are you seeing any problems here? So Saul technically waited the appointed seven days, but he was watching his wristwatch the whole time. And he's looking around. Is he here yet? Nope. Okay, I'm taking matters into my own hands now. He neglected the second part of what Samuel said. At the end of seven days, I will come and tell you what you're to do next. Not Samuel speaking for Samuel, but Samuel bringing the word of the Lord to Saul and giving him instructions about the next steps that he was to take. And so Saul technically waited until the very moment of that seventh day, and then he did what he had already been plotting and scheming and thinking of and what he'd been feeling. And really he's looking at the reality of these people scattering from him. And he's worried about his status and his reputation. And he's starting to get worried about himself as a leader. He's looking around at the circumstances and he's thinking, you know, God is not going to work. I need to take matters into my own hands. This is just a technicality. I'll just offer this sacrifice. I'll do this to establish my leadership, my power, my authority. He didn't wait until Samuel came to show him what to do as he'd been instructed in chapter 10. There's another very stern warning that uh, comes just a chapter before the passage we're reading. This is Samuel really talking to the whole nation of Israel. And he's saying, you know, it it can go one of two ways for you, Israel. You can either... Listen to God's commandments and be blessed, you and your king, or you can not listen to God's commandments, and then that blessing will be withheld. In fact, there will be punishment down that second option. So in in chapter 12, verse 14, Samuel, in his sermon to the nation of Israel, he says this, If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord... And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. That's option A. I'd suggest you choose option A, way church. Or, verse 15, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Once again, very clear. This is all happening within the first week of Saul's kingship. He's been given some clear instructions from God. He, you know, Maybe he's even begun to learn about Deuteronomy 17. Maybe he was paying attention on the day that Samuel preached that sermon to all of, the, all of Israel and said these are the requirements of a king. And no doubt opened that scroll of Deuteronomy 17 and said here's what it says. A person who knows God's word and proclaims that to the people. And yet now we have a very clear example one week later of Saul disregarding the word of the Lord. 
offering us an unauthorized sacrifice on his own, really similar to what we had seen in Eli's sons, disdaining the glory of God. Taking that, remember, you remember the beginning of 1 Samuel when we started this series in August? Taking that stake for themselves that was to be offered as a sacrifice to God. Really a similar heart here in Saul that he's saying, well, yeah, there's this technical thing we've got to offer a sacrifice. I'll just do it myself. We don't need a priest. We don't need to know all of this, uh, re- these requirements of God. The God who in his word reveals himself, his plans, and his ways. Saul's saying, well, yeah, I, I know God's plans. I know technically what his ways are. But I'll disregard that second component and just do things my way. The caution that we've just heard there in Samuel's sermon in 1 Samuel 12 is that if that's the path you go, then there will be coming judgment. The hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. The sober message of this text is that God's commandments are not suggestions. You know, it's not the ten suggestions. It's the ten commandments. And God, what God commands is to be taken seriously. There's a severe caution to ever getting out in front of God, to ever going beyond God's Word. And there's a sense in which even the way we set up a room for a Sunday morning worship service reminds us of the authority of God's Word, that we sit beneath the authority of God's Word. You notice I'm not one of these preachers who sets up chairs on the stage uh, just for the sake of the service flow and then walks over from there to here because I also come from the seats where we all sit as a body, sitting beneath God's Word. You know, I do come up here for a portion of our worship service to use the gift that God has given to me as a teacher. And that, that's not a fun spiritual gift to have. That's the one where you get warnings about millstones and being thrown into the depths of the sea if you cause one of these little ones to stumble. Not, a, not an awesome spiritual gift, but the one that I've been given. But it's symbolic that I, together with you, as a member of the flock, sit in seats of worship and, and receiving as others use their gifts. But really, this portion of the service, we're saying, you know, we're putting God's Word at an elevated place that we sit beneath, that we submit to, that we come listening and hearing with the desire to understand and obey. It's not a popular message in our culture. You know, we live in the world where truth is relative to the individual. Even now, today, you know, you'll hear things about self-identification, right? So, you know, if I think I could maybe say, well, I self-identify as someone with a Ph.D., why is that not legitimate? You know, in my internal reality, that's the truth, and I expect the rest of you to treat me accordingly, right? I mean, it gets a little bit crazy at a certain point. But really, we look at truth as very intrinsic in our culture. So it's whatever the individual logically and rationally and reasonably decides in their minds, or whatever the individual internally feels, senses, perceives, Those are kind of the two options our world offers us. And really, Saul is in that same category. We see in his heart this other possibility that there is a God who makes and creates reality, who says what is and what is not, who speaks 
And he speaks to those who listen and hear and obey. For Saul, that, that reality doesn't exist. Saul hasn't understood that up to this point. He's not understanding it now. He's not submitting to the Word of God. Instead, he's out in front of God. He's out making things happen. And that path never ends well. So there's a caution to us to come to that place of humility. And, and even as we come to God's Word together, say, God, you know, there may be some things that we hear today that we don't agree with rationally. There may be some things that we really feel are wrong. But today we're going to submit all that to you and trust that you are revealing yourself, your plans, and your ways through your word. We want to be among those who listen and obey, those who hear and obey, not those who are ignorant of what God is speaking because we never open this book, and not among those who, James warns, are hearers of the word only but not doers. We want to really put those two together where we're listening in a humble way that says, God, there's something about my mind that needs to be changed today. There's something about my heart that needs to be transformed in your presence. So God, we come humbly saying, speak to us and change us in your presence. And so now, in our story here, Samuel arrives on the scene just as that sacrifice has been offered, just at the moment that Saul has taken matters into his own hands. What does he do? Verse 11. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul begins to make excuses. He said, well, first of all, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed time, and thirdly, the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, well, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. And I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. That's probably what Samuel did as well at that point. He probably laughed. Oh, really? Okay, so out of fear of man, you know, you're looking around at the reality of you're starting, your leadership is in jeopardy and people are starting to wander around and wonder, does Saul know what he's doing? Or out of fear of the enemy, well, they're already at Michmash. Gilgal is next. You forced yourself, huh, Saul? And you just had to make things happen. Really, 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 what I, what I see here as Saul is, is like kind of using God once again like a lucky rabbit's foot like we saw earlier with the Ark of the Covenant of God in that battle where the, the nation of Israel is losing. They're like, well, I know. Let's get that magic juju Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Let's bring that down into battle. Then we'll win. But really a lack of understanding about God and his purposes and his ways. You know, you don't use God like a good luck charm and tack him on to whatever plans you already have. And that's really what Saul is doing. That's what Israel did earlier in 1 Samuel when the Philistines captured that Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and dragged it off to those five Philistine cities. And then they began to experience the real power of the living God with the, the, the uh, boils and the rats that were brought as judgment against them. Here once again, Saul wants to bring God into his plans instead of following the commands that the Lord 
our God had spoken to him. God's commands are not suggestions. I wonder today, as we are looking at this story, is there some aspect in your life where you are following your ideas rather than what God's word declares to be true? Yeah, and there are powerful forces at work. You know, there's a, there's a force maybe more powerful than that power of love. And it's the power of rationalization. How many of you have, have detected this where someone has wronged you? Usually you see it in someone else, not in yourself, right? Someone has wronged you and they've got, they've got reasons for it. They can justify it. They can rationalize it. They can explain it away. They can excuse it. But you're still left hurting. And no matter what excuse they bring, no matter what rationalization, no matter what justification, it all sounds pretty hollow to you when you look at that action. What if you take it, turn that around and you look at your own life? Are there things that you have been able to rationalize, justify, explain, excuse? When really when you look at God's word, you're saying this does not align with the laws, commands, and decrees of the Lord. This is not in step with the Spirit of God. This is not in that category of deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. It's not even in line with a commandment that Jesus gave in the New Testament. Did you know that there are commandments in the New Testament as well? Jesus says, a new command I leave with you. Love one another. And maybe there's a reason why you have rationalized, excused, justified disobedience to that command toward a brother or sister in Christ. What did Jesus do when he was tempted? Because that's really what, how we get to that place is there's a temptation to sin and we yield to that. So we look at Jesus' temptation. The first temptation that Satan brought to Jesus in the desert was, Jesus, you've been fasting for 40 days. You look famished. But over here, there's a rock. Why don't you turn that rock into bread? What did Jesus respond? He quoted, he, he, this is his quote, Man shall not live by bread alone, but... By every word that comes from the mouth of God. That is our correct response to the temptations that come our way. When we're tempted to follow our minds or to follow our hearts, maybe, maybe we need to quote Jesus during his temptation and say, man, will not, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God, there's some things in your word I don't agree with intellectually. There's some things in your word that rub me the wrong way, but I know that's because of my sin nature. It's because I'm still going through this process of sanctification. And so today, God, I, like your son Jesus, declare I will live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That place of humility, that place of listening, that place of implementing what God instructs is the path of blessing and life. Saul was not there. He was following uh, you know, he was motivated by several things. In his excuses, we see fear of the enemy. We see fear of the humans around him, fear of man. 
And so he gives these excuses. He, he's trying to justify his actions. How does Samuel assess all of these excuses, rationalizations, justifications that Saul has laid out? Verse 13. You have done foolishly. I pray that God brings a fellow brother or sister in Christ into your life who will tell you the hard things you need to hear. Do you have someone like this who when you are making choices that are really in the category of your own mind or your own heart, who will say to you, you have done foolishly. You know, um, I come from the state where we have this, this great thing that can be a really negative. It's called Minnesota nice. And that means kind of like when, you're, when your friend needs to hear you say you've done foolishly, you just bite your tongue. Right? Um, maybe you have that in Colorado as well, where there's times when God would use us to speak truth to one another and say, is that in the category of God's word or your own thinking? Because it sounds a lot like an excuse, excuse a justification, a rationalization. Here's what God's word says about that issue that you're facing. So, so Samuel puts his finger right on the issue and he says, you have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And so there's a parting of ways. The challenge to us is to be in that category that Samuel laid right out before Saul. Be a man or woman after God's own heart. How do you do that? Where do you find out who God is? Where do you find out what God's plans are? Where do you find out what God's ways are? How can you be a person after God's own heart? Get in His Word and get it into you. Keep the command of the Lord. How are you going to know what God commands? Your own reasoning, your own feelings will never get you there. But through listening submissively to God's Word, spending time daily, you will begin to have a heart change and you'll begin to see things through God's eyes. You'll begin to make decisions that are in line with God's heart. And then God will bless you. I think a, a, when I think of this challenge that we as adults face in submitting and listening, I think of our kids, right? You know, I, I mean, a kid has a really hard time reasoning with the thinking of their parents. Even teenagers. They're not in the room, so we could pick on them as well. Even, yeah, surprisingly, even teenagers struggle emotionally with getting on board with what their mom and dads think are best. I don't know if you've experienced this in your homes, those of you who are at that stage. Did you know that? Okay, you know, like, but, but mom, you know, I've got a whole pillowcase full of Halloween candy from the neighbors. Mom, what are you thinking? It's all delicious. 
Why can I not sit down and eat it all right now? Think about it, Mom. This is a good thing. Mom's like, no, you're going to get diabetes and rot all your teeth out of your head. And it's very clear to us how unwise that would be. Here's your two pieces for today. There'll be another two pieces tomorrow, and then we'll throw it away the next day, you know. And the kid is like, this does not make sense intellectually. This, my, my heart and my emotions don't jive with this. And yet my mom is issuing this command that doesn't make any sense. It's not right. It's not good. It doesn't have my best interests in mind. And we can look at that condescendingly toward a child and say, well, you just, you know, you're not at a stage yet where you understand. You're not developed and mature. We know better. And yet, at what point did we as adults cross that line to where now we have achieved independence, autonomy, seeing clearly? It's naive for us to think that we are no longer dependent. It's naive for us to think that our minds and hearts will lead us to good places. Just like that six-year-old with the pillowcase full of sugar that's going to kill you, and rot your teeth out, we go after appetites and lusts and desires that will lead us down the path of destruction. And God is saying, live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That is where blessing comes. And yet we, like a little child, think we know best or we feel best the direction we should go. Really, we need to, like a child, trust our Father when He says, because I said so. And just say, okay, I don't understand, but I trust you. I don't understand, but I know you love me. I don't understand, but I'm going to obey. And that's the path of blessing. Now let's turn to chapter 15, really the, the culmination of this rejection of Saul as king. So one more story of disobedience for Saul, another picture into his heart, not just this day when maybe you and I would give grace to Saul on that first episode in chapter 13 and say, well, you know, you know, technically he did wait the seven days. So really now we're in a different category. Maybe there's an excuse for that. Well, we're going to see more of Saul's heart here in chapter 15. So here's another a battle scene in chapter 15. This is a difficult passage. Um, tempted to just skip over it because I don't have to try to unpack this one for you. But let's just dive in. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Is anyone besides me a little bit alarmed by verse 3? Okay, this is a difficult passage of Scripture where God is, instruct, is instructing the king of his people to utterly destroy an entire people group, the nation of Amalek. Well, who is this Amalek? Let's, let's start there. And then we'll look at the, the question of genocide. 
Well, Amalek, we, we see here in the text, there's a reference to Egypt. This is going back in Israel's history to the days of Moses when Israel was in slavery to this foreign power of Egypt. Um, how did they get to Egypt? Go to the end of Genesis uh, chapter 49, 50. There, there's a journey to Egypt because of Joseph who served in Pharaoh's pot- Potiphar and then Pharaoh's court there. And so the nation of Israel ends up in Egypt. They're blessed at the beginning. They're given the land of Goshen. But they are so blessed that they multiply. And you fast forward 430 years, and now we're at the beginning of Exodus. There's so many of them, and we're so many generations removed that now the ruler of Egypt has enslaved the nation of Israel. And they're working as slaves in Egypt. And so God comes and he sends a deliverer. He appoints Moses to lead his people to the promised land. It's the 12 plagues. It's the crossing of the Red Sea. It's this journey to the land of Canaan, the land that God has promised, where he will fulfill the promises to Abraham way back earlier in Genesis. I will bless you. I will make you a blessing. Your descendants will be like the sand on the seashore, like the stars in the heaven. And so God's plan, God's heart, has always been to bless all the nations of the earth, using this one chosen people, the nation of Israel. So we see really God's heart there in Genesis 15 is to bless all the nations of the earth. So that context is important for this passage we're looking at, 1 Samuel 15. Along the way, as they're leaving Egypt and heading to the promised land of Canaan, they just get through the Red Sea and they're opposed by this enemy nation called Amalek, who's really not just opposing God's people, but really standing in opposition to God's plans. And God is the one who looks into human hearts and knows thoughts and motives and intentions. God is the one who sees this action of Amalek, not just a random attack, but really the enemy of God, standing in opposition to God's plan to lead a people from slavery to the land of promise. The God who has chosen this people to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Amalek literally and representatively, enemies of God opposed to his plans, opposed to his ways, threatening and thwarting God's plan. And that you can read about that in the book of Exodus chapter 17. You see this story. It's the day that uh, the nation of Israel is in battle. Moses, they notice whenever his hands are lifted up, the, the nation of Israel is winning the battle against Amalek. Whenever he lowers his hands, they start to lose. And so God is working as Moses is holding up his arms in the battle. And he gets tired. And so they have him sit down on a rock and they put Aaron on one side and her on the other. And they're holding up his arms. And that works. And as long as God continues to grant victory in battle when uh, Moses' arms are upheld. And so that's the day there in Exodus 17. There's a couple of key statements there at the end of that story. One is that God declares, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under, the, under heaven. And then at the very end, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This story here in 1 Samuel 15 should not be seen as a template for God's people. You know, that we, the New Testament people of God, need to find someone to wage war with, to utterly destroy, right? You would be very naive to misinterpret the passage in this way. It's not even a template for God's people in the Old Testament 
to say every nation that you encounter utterly destroy every man, woman, child, donkey, every animal that they've got. This is a very specific, isolated incident in the nation of Israel's history. It's really God himself at war with Amalek. That's an important context to note. Another phrase that we encounter here at the beginning and also crops up later in this story is that phrase, devote to destruction. Really, that's a liturgical uh, phrase, which, is, which means it's a phrase used for worship. Okay? So when it says devote to destruction, it really means consecrate to God for worship. Consecrate to God, devote to God in a way where it's consumed, where it's destroyed. It's, the, it's what happened to all of the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. You know, you would take the best of your flock, the best sheep that you have, or whatever livestock you have, and then you would offer it to God, you would devote it to God for worship. And that's what God requested and required of Saul in this battle against Amalek. Basically, turn them into a sacrifice. Consecrate them to the Lord as a sacrifice. Now, it doesn't make this passage any easier. It's still a very difficult passage. It's one that non-Christians, atheists, will point to and say, really, this is the God you believe in? And you want to follow him? Does that ring true with your heart? If you're following your own feelings and you're putting God on the witness seat, you're standing in judgment over God, is this just to kill infants and children? To, to, you know, these are, there's some innocence here in Amalek. How do you feel about that? And that's a, a very tough question that will be posed to us and could really rattle our faith. Some people will explain that away by saying, well, you know, thank God we serve the God of the New Testament, not the God of the Old Testament. Thank God there's two gods. And, and right in, at the end of Malachi, that old God, he's gone now. And there's a whole new God. You know, that Old Testament God, man, he was a God of wrath, judgment, anger. But this New Testament God, it's all, it's all love, you know, cotton candy, grace, pillowcases full of candy. You know, is that true, I guess, is the first question. Are there two different gods? Well, I remember my Old Testament professor at Bethel, Dr. Howard, would walk us through every, every Old Testament class, he would walk us through that very misconception, and he would just go to all the Old Testament passages that talk about God's mercy, God's unfailing love, his steadfast love, God's grace. And he would really, because he was an Old Testament scholar, he would show us that, you know, that love, that mercy, that grace, that was all in the Old Testament as well. In fact, even those promises to Abraham, I'm going to bless you to make you a blessing so that through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That God is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. He's unchanging. There's also some very terrifying passages in the New Testament about God's judgment and punishment for sin. One that I would point you to is in Hebrews chapter 4. Um, or, uh, sorry, Hebrews chapter 10. There's warnings there about how deliberate sin leads to punishment. And it says, those who spurn the Son of God, those who profane the sanctifying blood of the covenant, those who outrage the Spirit of grace, 
and stand opposed to God. And then the caution at the end, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There is punishment that follows deliberate sin in Hebrews 10. That's in the New Testament. So the myth of a God of judgment, wrath, punishment in the Old Testament, and then a nice, soft, warm, fuzzy God in the New Testament, that's just not true. This is a powerful God that we serve. He's the maker of heaven and earth. All of his divine attributes are on display. And you get the grace and the favor and the love and the mercy and the judgment and the punishment and the wrath all from that one same God who is unchanging. So that is not a good explanation for this passage in 1 Samuel 15. Really, as I said, this is a unique episode. This is really God's holy war here against this particular nation of Amalek. It's a unique moment in history. It's not a template for the Old Testament people of God, the New Testament people of God, including us today. This is a one-off event where God is standing in opposition to this one nation. It's not genocide that we're seeing. It's really divine judgment that began back in Exodus 17, and now we're seeing it fulfilled. The verse I was going to quote from Hebrews 4 is this, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Hebrews 4.13 So God is able to look into human hearts. God is able to discern thoughts, intentions, and motives. God is able to see not just where you are today, but where you will be someday. We can't do that. So we look at the nation of Amalek, and we say, how could he devote all of them to destruction? Well, he's able to do that because he discerns the thoughts and intentions of hearts. He knows the eventual path that every individual human, every nation will take. Before a single day comes to pass, he knows every one of them while you're still in your mother's womb. So God is able to justly look at the nation of Amalek and say, they are all fit for destruction. They are all under judgment and wrath, no matter what life stage they happen to be at. We look at that through our temporal, finite human lenses, and we go, that's unjust. What about second chances? What about an opportunity to change? And that's all fine and proper from our perspective. But from God's perspective, he is entitled to do this. Something which clashes with our emotions, which doesn't jive with our thoughts, and yet the glorious king is able to display his glory. I think it's a category error that we commit to say, God, you know, there's some category that's just above you, God, and you've got to play by the rules of that category. Well, what did we just do? We actually just made that category God. And we made now the real God, a, a sub-God, a lesser God, to whatever that category may be. It could be human reason. Well, God, you have to play by the rules of human reason. You can't step outside of something that we have perceived using science, using our five senses, using all the tools that we have God, if you do something unreasonable or illogical, then you violated this other God that we serve called enlightenment thinking. Well, God, you can't do something unethical because there's this more supreme God than you called ethics. So you can't make something that's wrong be right. 
you, God, come beneath ethics, that category, and you've got to play by the rules of ethics. Or else, once again, it's illogical, it's irrational. And yet, God stands above all those categories. There's an attribute of God that I think is helpful for us to think of. It's called infinitude. And and every subset of infinitude allows God to display whatever attributes he wants. I like to do this with systematic theology, okay? Systematic theology is awesome. I love it. I love reading all the systematic theology books. Theology, knowledge of God, systematic, or you're trying to make it logical. You're trying to make it flow. It's just that that's not how God revealed himself to us, right? You know, we don't have... We have books of the Bible ordered in stories in different genres. And we have like the book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel combined. We don't have like the book of pneumatology, the book of ecclesiology, the book of soteriology. These are human constructs that we use to try to organize our thinking about God, our knowledge of God. And yet, even theology can become a category that we put above God. And say, God, well, now we've got you figured out. We've got you nailed down. You try to reveal yourself in this narrative way that causes us to be in this continual quest, faith-seeking understanding. But we logical, rational Westerners have systematized your revelation of yourself. And now we can make definitive statements about who you are, what you do. But there's this attribute of infinitude that allows God the timeless, eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, first source to step into one moment of time at one place on this planet to be, become matter in the form of Jesus. And so one of the subsets, if you're going to make a Venn diagram of that attribute of God, within infinitude is finiteness finitude and Jesus can come as a man and be God with us and he can take on flesh he can take on space time and matter at one point because of this attribute of infinitude and this is the God who says judge the nation of Amalek devote to destruction every everyone young and old all their animals And I think the reason that this doesn't jive with our emotions is because we have too low of a view of our God. We don't see him as he is. We try to place him within categories that make sense to us intellectually or emotionally, and he's above that. And so really, we're being confronted with our decision. Do we listen and obey? Do we trust even when we don't understand? Or does it have to feel good and make sense? Saul was more than happy to go into this battle, but not because he had the purposes of God in mind. He saw this as an opportunity to draw attention to himself once again. Verse 4, so Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Taliam, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the, the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah 
as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. So far, things are looking good. Saul has obeyed the word of the Lord that Samuel brought, and God has granted the victory. But, verse 8, he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Uh Uh-oh. And devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. You know, I unpack that phrase for you, devoted to destruction. Really, if you look at the Hebrew behind that, what did I, what did, what did I explain there in verse 3? That means to consecrate to the Lord for worship. And now we're seeing that phrase again. What did Saul devote to the Lord? What did he devote to destruction or set apart for worshiping the Lord? Only that which was worthless. Only that which was despised. How often do we give to God only what we don't want for ourselves? You know, today, our elder Mac gave us a good context for tithing, bringing the first fruits. It reminds me of the story of the widow's might. You know, when people were giving in a way to draw attention to themselves, and here comes this widow just sneaking in, giving everything that she's got. And it cost her. And it wasn't a lot of money by, our, by anyone's measure, but it was what she had. And she gave sacrificially in a way that said, I'm, I'm taking an act of faith. I'm obeying. I'm setting this apart as an offering to God. And that's a totally different heart from giving God the leftovers, giving God an afterthought, giving God the extra after every necessity and desire is met. And really, there's a a caution to us in Saul's action here. Don't follow your human heart. Don't follow what feels good to you. But instead, listen to what God commands. Follow what God commands. God had given very clear instructions through Samuel. Devote to destruction. Consecrate for worship. Give everything over to me. I'm going to grant you the victory. Now glorify and honor me. And Saul instead kept all the good stuff for himself. So this happened. Samuel's not present, but God reveals this to him. Verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned his back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. There's another um, difficult, (laughs) this is another difficult passage in this chapter. When God says, I regret, that causes problems for systematic theologians. Because one of the attributes of God is God's immutability. That means God does not change. 
that God says that himself. I, the Lord, change not. The Bible tells us God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So systematic theologians look at those verses, proof texts, and they say, okay, there's an attribute, divine attribute, add that to the list, immutability. God does not change. And here we have a challenging verse, 1 Samuel 15, that says God repented, regretted, or turned from a previous decision that God had made. Uh-oh. But we have, a, we have a divine attribute called immutability. We can't have God changing. What do we do with that? One thing you can do is say, well, that's just human perception of God. God is still immutable. God is still unchanging. But from a human perspective, it looks as if God changes his mind. But all along, he's sovereign. He knows the beginning from the end. And so he made a, he made a decision that you know we, as we're passing through time, finite creatures, not omniscient, we can't see the beginning from the end. It appeared that when God said this, he planned this, but in actuality, he already had this in mind all along. It's a pretty good explanation. The text just says God turned, repented, regretted. So that might be a bit of a stretch to try to fit God into that category of immutability. Let's put that beneath God. Let's put God up on top. Let's let him be who he is and his words say about him what it says. Now, to, to add to the complexity of this verse, you have Samuel just later in this chapter that we're going to read in a bit saying in verse 29, God is not a man that he should have regret. Um, but Samuel, he just did regret. And then at the end of the chapter in verse 15, it says again, the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. These neat categories of divine attributes sometimes break down when we look at particular examples and episodes. And I think it's just another sign for us to need to be humble and to come and say, God, teach us more about who you are. God, we trust that it is true that you are the same yesterday and forever, that you do not change. And yet it's also true that here in this story, you somehow changed your mind in a way that we don't understand because that's what your word says. God is above whatever category constraints we can conceive of. Is he eternal? Oh yeah, absolutely. But he's also able to be temporal. He's able to step into a moment in history and be born in a particular manger on a particular day that's within the calendar. How is that? That's a mystery. Is he omniscient, all-knowing? Absolutely. And yet he's also somehow able to grow in wisdom and in favor, in stature, and in favor with both God and man. How can God develop in the area of wisdom when he's omniscient? That's a mystery. Is God omnipotent? Is he all-powerful? Absolutely. And yet he's also able to make himself nothing, and take on the very nature of a servant. This God that we serve is way bigger than we've imagined. And he is God over systematic theology. He is God over the category of divine attributes. And here in this chapter, we're seeing one of those difficult passages that give us a picture into God's heart. He's always at work for his glory. He's always at work 
revealing himself and his ways and his purposes through his word. And here we have Samuel who is all night crying. He's angry. He's looking at the purposes of God. He's looking at the future of God's people. He has the kingdom of God in mind. What's Saul doing that night? When Samuel is crying, Samuel is angry and he's grieved at what has happened. What's Saul busy doing? In verse 13, in verse 12, Samuel arose early to meet Saul in the morning and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. That's what Saul's been busy with. While Samuel is grieving, weeping before the Lord, angry about what has transpired, the the disobedience, the rejection of God's commandments explicitly once again, Saul's busy making a monument to himself. Look at me. Hey, nation of Israel, don't be wandering away. Look at me, what a leader I am. I have gone out before you in battle. I have crushed the enemy. Look at the spoils of war that I've brought back, including this king. Brought him back as a trophy. He's making a monument to himself. And so Samuel now goes to confront him. Verse 13, he came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Samuel said, What then is this bleating of sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? What was the command? Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Saul kept all the good stuff for himself, made a monument to himself, devoted to the Lord only that which was worthless or undesirable, despised. And now Samuel once again puts his finger on the heart of the matter. I'm hearing some disturbing noises, Saul, that don't jive with your version of the history that you just gave me. And Saul said, well, they've been brought, they have brought, notice, they, not me, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen um, to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. So once again, we're getting these excuses, we're getting the justification, we're getting the half-truths, blame-shifting. You know, I've obeyed, I have brought, I have devoted, but the people took. Half-truths. Samuel sees through it. Verse 16, Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. Once again, I hope you have someone in your life who is a follower of Jesus, who's in the Word, who has the courage to say to you when you need to hear it, Stop. Don't don't give me your spin. Don't give me your version of reality. This is what God's word says about your marriage, about your finances, 
about your plans, about this sin issue. Stop. Saul spe- Samuel speaks the truth to Saul. And now he, he begins to explain what God has said. Though you are little in your own eyes, and you, you're not the head of, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel once again, now, I did all the right things. It was the people. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. You know, once again, let me off on a technicality. We're going to get around to sacrificing all this stuff. We just wanted to bring it here first. And then Samuel, these are, man, these are some great verses here that I'd encourage you to memorize. Write it on a three-by-five card, hang it on your bathroom mirror, carry it with you. Verse 22, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. To obey is better than sacrifice. So that blame shifting didn't, it didn't affect Samuel in one bit. He, you know, he wasn't able to go with Saul to that place of, oh no, 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 the people did this. We're going to make it right. We're going to get around to doing the sacrifice. He goes back to that same message. Obey. Listen. How can you obey what you haven't heard? How can we obey God's laws, commands, and decrees if we're not in his word? By whatever we feel would please him. By whatever we think he's leading us to. Or are we really among those who come humbly and say, God, speak to us through your word. Change us by your spirit. Work within us. And then we hear and obey. The opposite is rebellion, presumption, rejecting. And there's no amount of sacrifice or empty confession that can turn, somehow magically turn, rejecting the word of the Lord into something acceptable and good. And that's what Saul learned this day. That now, after it's too late, after he's clearly in the category of rejecting the word of the Lord. There's nothing Samuel can do at this point to like somehow turn that into something good. God has already decided and he's made a decision to reject Saul and his kingship. And so now we hear, once again, Saul's last uh, attempt to Now make recompense for his wrong. Saul said to Samuel, verse 24, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. 
It looks like an authentic confession. We're going to find out in a few verses, not so much. And here's when Samuel says to him, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And then Samuel turned, as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And um, Samuel turns it into one of those opportunistic sermon illustrations. And he says, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And now listen to this. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. There's that phrase that we saw earlier, and it, it ends the chapter as well, about regretting or repenting or turning, same word. But in this case, it's because God has already repented. He's already turned. He's already re- regretted. He's not spinning in circles. You know, so his first choice was to appoint Saul as the king of his people. He turned from that decision, and now he's going in a new direction. He's not going to turn again and go back. He's not a God who spins in circles. And so that judgment, that pronouncement of judgment upon Saul is going to be carried out. And then, now here's really the the true confession of Saul that looked pretty authentic a verse or two ago. Verse 30, he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Just let me um, save face. Let me keep up the appearances. Let's, let's just you know, make it look as if I'm still in God's favor. That was really at the heart of his original confession. Again, fear of man is his main motivator. And so Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Look, look at that word, Lord. You know, this is one that in, in our Christianese, we talk about Jesus is our Lord and Savior. And really, we need to think about what those words mean. The Savior part is awesome. We're all in. God, thank you that you saved me from my sins. Thank you that you saved me from my guilt and the punishment of my sins. He's our Savior. We are all on board with that one. It's the Lord part that gets a little tricky. Lord is what you call the king who has authority over you, who has jurisdiction over your thinking and your feeling and your priorities and your future, who, to whom everything belongs. Lord is what you call the one that you are actually submitting to. And here we have Saul giving an appearance of surrender, submission, listening and obeying. Hey, you know, I'm not actually going to yield to the Lord, but for the sake of the people, let's make it look as if I am. And so he goes and bows before the Lord in a public way. Let's be among those who, when we call him Lord, it's in a way that costs us. It's in a way that says, God, I give up my hopes, my dreams, my plans. I submit it to you. I surrender to you. When I say, Lord, it's not in, a, in an external, superficial way, not in a way to draw attention to myself, not while I'm making a monument to myself last night so that people will be impressed, but in a way that says, God, I cry out to you. I lay it all down before you. 
And now Samuel does what Saul should have done all along. The end of the chapter, verse 32, Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. This, this story will never make it into any episode of Veggie Tales. Kids' ministry won't be using this one. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. You know, everyone I know has been murdered, but I save my neck. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Today we're going to take communion together. And I was thinking about the words of that song that we sing, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. It actually talks about the Father turning his face away. You're not going to find that verse in Scripture. We did see a little bit of that aspect of God's heart here in 1 Samuel 15, of him going in in one direction and then turning in another. And I think really at the heart of that lyric, the Father turns his face away, what happens between the Father and the Son at the cross. Now that song is, is a powerful picture into the heart of God. You know, it costs Jesus to take on flesh and come be God with us, to leave his seat at the right hand of the Father and to come and take upon himself the sins of all mankind, to pay the price for our sins and the penalty. But it also is costly to God. This is his beloved son in whom he is well pleased and he offers him for the sake of our sins. And really the turning of God's face at that point of crucifixion, that lyric exists because we're trying to think about the doctrine of the Trinity. If Jesus is fully God and fully man, how can he die on the cross and still remain divine and eternal and unending. And so we're wrestling with that. And so, you know, we got to be careful on keeping the Trinity together in our, in our thinking of, of what's happening there at the crucifixion. But really, this is the perfect picture of God regretting, repenting, turning. And what happens at the cross is that God is going down a path of his justice and his wrath being poured out on sinners. Fill in your name. In that category because the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. It tells us that the wages of our sin is death. There's a paycheck that we get at the end of our life for the sins we have committed and it's eternal separation from God. It's eternal judgment and wrath. And yet through Jesus the Father turns his face away from that plan of destruction and judgment that we are deserving of. And instead, he he sets his eyes on a new path that's based on the holiness of his Son, that perfect, spotless Lamb of God that takes away the sins of every man, woman, and child that cleanses us. And we're white as snow. Our sins are 
throne as far as the east is from the west, and he forgets those sins. He doesn't even remember them. You come back later and say, hey, God, do you remember that sin that you forgave me for a year ago? And he's going, wait, what? No? That, that one's gone. I, I don't even know what you're talking about. And so that is the way the Father turns his face at the cross. He turns his face away from this plan A of judgment and wrath for sin. And now instead, of because of Jesus, for those who are in Christ, those who are new creations, those who are submitted to him and allowing that gift to work within us, those who he has called to himself, there's a new plan. He's turned his face towards that path of blessing, of his purposes, of sharing in the joy with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, of looking forward to that day when we gather with all the saints, cry out to him, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so today as we take communion, we're giving thanks for the fact that God turns his face, that God changes in that way because of the gift that he gives himself. And we're remembering that finished work of Christ on the cross. So let's stand together. We're going to give thanks and pray. If you are a follower of Jesus, then I invite you to, as we, as we pray, as we prepare to receive that, uh, the, the elements of communion, let's give thanks together and then you're welcome to move to one of these tables. You don't have to be a member of our church. Uh, you don't have to take communion today. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're still considering the claims of Christ, then we encourage you to just observe this portion of our worship service today. Let's give him thanks. God, we thank you for the good news. We thank you that you are revealing yourself through your word. We thank you for the finished work of Christ on the cross. Thank you, Lord, that your blood is sufficient. And as we remember today, we also give thanks and we look forward to your return. We do this together. We do this in remembrance of you. In Jesus' name, amen.